Welcome to We Are Chafee Looking Upstream, a conversational podcast of humanness, community, and well-being rooted in Chafee County, Colorado. I'm Adam Williams. Today I'm talking with Ray Nypaver. Ray is a nature-based psychotherapist and a running coach. She's an essayist and a poet. Ray and I get into a deep and heartful conversation here. We talk about some of the biggest questions and topics about our existence as humans. Things like worthiness and fear, and ego and identity. We talk about love. We talk about death. Ray's older sister, Amanda, died three years ago at the age of 36. Of course, that's a significant experience in Ray's life, and it opened the way to deeper learnings for her. We talk about that experience and Ray's reflections on it since. Some of those are shared in her newest book, Light and Dark, Reflections on the Human Experience. She studied at Naropa, a Buddhist-inspired university in Boulder, Colorado. And given my own background and studies in spiritual practices, Ray and I joyfully delve into matters of spirituality and how to be our highest, truest selves. Like the importance of breaking down our beliefs, the things we think we think, and those things that we cling to as truth, and who we think we really are at heart, at soul. Asking ourselves those deep, introspective questions is not only to understand ourselves better, but to better understand each other, humans in general, and then to connect and have less fear and more love. We talk about truth and why people fear the truth and turn toward the comfort of, well, untruths and darkness and fear and pain. We also talk about magic and joy. It's all interwoven in the flow of this conversation as it is in life. The Looking Upstream podcast is supported by Chafee County Public Health and the Chafee Housing Authority. Media partners are KHEN 106.9 FM Community Radio in Salida, Colorado, which airs this show at 1 p.m. on Tuesdays, and the Chafee County Times and the Mountain Mail, two local newspapers where I publish a monthly column related to the We Are Chafee Community Storytelling Initiative and this Looking Upstream podcast. Show notes, including links and a full transcript of the conversation, are available at wearechafee.org. You can support the podcast by following We Are Chafee Pod on Instagram and the We Are Chafee account on Instagram and Facebook. Enthusiastic ratings and reviews on Apple and Spotify are helpful and greatly appreciated too. Now here we go with Ray Nypaper. Hi Ray, it's great to be here with you. Likewise, yeah. Again, we just have like I'm your energy it is it's just so great to be in the presence of. Well, thank you. I don't know if I'm blushing, but <laughs> <laughs> but well, you know, that's a heck of a place for us to start is how do we receive compliments? How do we receive positives in a world when maybe our experience is no 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 no. Mm-hmm. No, you you keep that. I can't be that. Mm-hmm. Right? And well, actually, you can answer that question. That can just be where we start. How do we receive love and light and, and compliments in the world? Yeah, and I'm going to, I will slightly flip that and ask the question, well, how do you block love? Hmm. And so I noticed this, this was just two weeks ago. I was like volunteering in a race 
and it was the day after um, Thanksgiving. It was the, like the Christmas Christmas Mountain Five Miler in Salida, and we volunteer in this one spot. When I say we, uh, my sister and her partner volunteer in this one spot every year. And the runners will go by, especially this year because it was snowing and freezing. And they're like, thank you for being out here. And my initial response was just like, of course, like happy to be out here. My pleasure. And then I'm like, I just need to say like, you're welcome here and accept that, that they're like happy that I'm out here, like bringing a smile, pointing them in the right direction. And this has been like a huge process for me, I'd say, even just this past year of like allowing love in. And sometimes maybe it's more um, easier to think of when we think of all the ways we block love out. So even compliments, how if we can just question ourselves, like what do I, when somebody gives me a compliment, what's my natural inclination And if we want to go further, we can like follow the why, like where did we learn to do that? Why do we do it now? But yeah, I'd say that's a good place to start. I love the way you flipped that. I have been actively trying in the last few years when somebody does something for me, offers Mm -hmm. something to me. I don't know any other way than to just be open and and direct with that Mm -hmm. and let them know where I am in my process and practice and to explicitly say, thank you for what you're offering. Mm -hmm. I have been trying, I've been practicing Mm -hmm. receiving better because I have had a pattern and a history of denying that. And what I have learned is that when I deny somebody the opportunity to give, then I am actually taking from them. I'm taking away from their experience, their Mm -hmm. love, their interest and generosity. I'm denying that person something. Yeah. Absolutely. But to flip that and say, how do I block love? That that really hit when you said that. I would imagine that everyone listening in some sense knows that they have blocked love from themselves, within themselves, I mean, mm-hmm. from others. And why do we do that? You know, that can sit as a rhetorical question because I know we're actually going to answer it throughout this conversation as we get into, well, all kinds of things that I know that we, we share in common as an interest. Speaking of things in common, you know, we both are runners. You're a running coach. You're also a nature-based psychotherapist. And so I think that package of how you show up in the world is an amazing offering here for this kind of conversation that I'm looking forward to having. And if we use running as a bit of a framework for this, mm-hmm. and I'll say to non-runners, where we're going to head here is not actually into the mm-hmm. weeds with running. Mm-hmm. You can listen, and this is going to apply to your mm-hmm. life too. But you and I as runners are both experiencing something in terms of injury, long-term, mm-hmm. recovery, long-term. And that leads us into things that apply to everyone in the sense of ego and identity. Mm-hmm. Who am I if I'm not a runner? This emotional, mental health situation I have found myself in because I'm a year now without running And I'm at a point Mm -hmm. where I'm just thinking, I don't know if I'm ever going to run in a meaningful way again. Mm -hmm. My question, I guess, comes back to something you and I were talking about before we hit record. Mm -hmm. I know you have thoughts on this and how it ties into the body and what the signals are, Mm -hmm. let alone the ego and identity. I mean, we could just run the entire conversation. I could just be quiet and let you go, I'm sure, (laughs) on some different paths, and I would love to listen to that. So take whatever you want from that, whatever's coming to your mind right now. Mm, 
There's so many things that you already said right I, I there. I know. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Go deep on. No, and I trust you. You're so good at tracking that we'll come back to like the, well, I'll get into like more of the allowing and receiving. But in terms of like tying this into the body, so you and I both have left side body yeah. issues and both um, feet and ankle stuff, which already says so much right there. So left side is um, really about receiving. Left side's like both like the the our wild and creative energy and like um, what we can receive in. Feet are so much about like the path forward and expressing like our true natures. So with that, how I can tie this in is when we essentially deny love, we are not in touch. We're blocking out who we truly are, which is tied back in t- to love. And so the the belief here, the false belief that we've all been given is that we are not worthy and we are not worthy of love. And I know I have acted off of that belief most of my life. So me now being able to receive compliments, thanks, gratitude is me also accepting who I am as somebody who is enough and who is worthy. And I can say this right now in like a few sentences and I'm laughing because that journey to get there was anything but easy. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Yeah. I imagine all of us have that struggle, right? Mm -hmm. In fact, as we have used the word love so many times, and I don't know that I have in any other conversation, and that is a very challenging word for mm-hmm. me, mm-hmm. concept for me. Yeah. The only three people on the planet I can use it freely with are my wife and my two sons. Mm-hmm. Not even my parents, siblings, let yeah. alone bigger concepts like loving neighbors, community, mm-hmm. the world at large. Mm-hmm. You know, And there's a lot of pain in the world that yeah. I feel, there's a lot of things that could use love, I'm getting into a tangled place here because I know those go together that how we are feeling about, you know, people use the word division and mm-hmm. so on in our society at this point. And it is very difficult in that context to say, oh, but I love you all, <laughs> you know, and, mm-hmm. and to create that connection through that. I just want to like pause and like let that soak in. I know it's always awkward, like on a podcast to have no, a pause. No, no, do. Um, do what feels right here because part of me gets that and it comes back to that saying like love or like love is a word that like we don't say enough and we say it too much but I think it's because Mm -hmm. like we don't really know what it means and we get stuck into this pattern of of conditional and unconditional love and I think most of us believe in unconditional love, but we actually don't have a tangible experience of it because we grew up with conditions. And so I think I've come to the, a place where I'm almost opposite of what you just said, where I can oh, like love. Do I want to say anybody? I will say anybody. But I think it's because I've gotten to the root of why people do things that we want to say are bad or evil. And so really, this took me a while to understand too, is a lot of spiritual teachers will say that fear is the opposite of love. 
And it's really taken me like down to the depths to like understand what that means. But the only reason people will ever do something harmful, act out of hate is because they are so scared at a fundamental level. And again, it kind of comes back to that place of like, I'm not enough, I'm unworthy. So I'm going to develop this like persona where I am all powerful and like, I don't need love. I don't need to let it, let it in. And then we like flip power on its head and make it like this outward expression to like protect ourselves. But that's not, that's not true power. That's just what we made up. I have a spiritual teacher and and friend who Mm -hmm. taught me that every act is either an act out of love or an act out of a need and desire for love. Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking about the fear and love thing in the way that you just expressed that. And I'm thinking of your book, Light and Dark. I've got Mm -hmm. so many thoughts going Mm -hmm. right now. And and that's often the case, but especially as I'm racing to try to get words out, Mm -hmm. it's a challenge. If fear is opposite of love, and while I understand that, while I was reading your book, I was also thinking of the perspective that rather than love and hate being opposites, or in this case, fear and love, that indifference might also apply as an opposite of love and hate because love and hate are such strong emotions. It's a thin line and Mm -hmm. so on, whereas indifference is just sort of a coldness, a lack of feeling, a lack of emotion and Mm -hmm. interest. But in that book, you also write about love as connection. And mm-hmm. while you were talking, I'm thinking, okay, fear. If we look mm-hmm. at society and, and some of the, mm-hmm. the conflicts societally going on, mm-hmm. so much happens out of fear. Mm-hmm. And then there's a withdrawal from the bigger picture. There's a mm-hmm. disbelief maybe in love and in connection. Yeah. And love, I think you have said, it can be a synonym for connection. Mm-hmm. So... I don't know where that brings us to. There's obviously not a question mark, mm-hmm. but I'm just, I'm sitting and thinking through this with you. And I hope that listeners do too, because I think that you and I could just do this for a whole conversation mm-hmm. where we touch on these different, deep, meaningful mm-hmm. ideas. Ego also comes to mind because of its connection, I think, with fear, mm-hmm. with our self-protection yeah. in the world, mm-hmm. Uh and disconnection, separation, all the things. So again, I lay all of these words at your feet and I sit here asking you to choose what is on your mind and I will gratefully listen. (laughs) Oh gosh, there's so much. Um, So yeah, fear, separation, we can say are also like synonyms for each other. Um, The belief that we're all different and then we create like this hierarchy off of it too and we can basically relate like all of the world's problems like back to that issue or or this um yeah that that piece of fear what i appreciated you saying because it's taken me a a while to understand indifference and i always think of there's a lumineer song um that i love that is the and they say the opposite of love is indifference and i it took me a while to understand what that means but you saying it to me or reflecting that back is like oh it's like that numbness it's again like shutting off love because like we because we don't believe in it i'm now yeah. thinking that might be where i got that that yeah. thought <laughs> really like, well it might have been that the lumineers song and those lyrics mm-hmm. made the most impression on me of I mean, i'm sure there are other sources yeah. for that concept yeah 
But now that you say it and I'm hearing it in my <laughs> head, funny. I'm like, oh, that that's right. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's right. So maybe that's exactly what I was thinking of subconsciously. Let's go back to the idea of, you know, I brought up the fact that we're runners mm-hmm. and we both have, mm-hmm. well, this might not be the way you will mm-hmm. phrase it and you'll, you'll fix this up for me as yeah. we go forward. I feel a loss, right? I feel a loss yeah. of running as an activity in mm-hmm. my life in the way that it helps for physical, mental, emotional mm-hmm. well-being. I feel loss and grief over identity, ego. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, if I'm not this, if I'm not able to do this thing that my family mm-hmm. or whoever knows me to be interested in and, and do, who am I? What is the next thing I need to find? Okay, I tried to fill that with a bike. Okay, now I've got injuries from riding the bike. Mm-hmm. What all is this signaling to me and how do we how do we deal with those identity things? This is such a common, I think, question for anybody who tries to take on any athletic endeavor and gets injured. But I think it also applies to anybody who is, I don't know, I've been a lawyer for 30 years. Mm-hmm. Now I'm retired. Who am I? Kind mm-hmm. of question. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for circling around because I did want to get back to that. So we never long truly for an activity, another person, another place. We only long for ourselves. The soul only longs for itself and to be known and to be seen. And so what I see... I'll use runners for now because that's, I think, easiest for both of us. Um, What I see is people starting to identify as a runner. And that's a lie. Like what we are, we are not the actual physical being that runs. We are the creative life force behind running. But we start to identify with this thing. And I think what happens for people who become injured, and I'm going to say for somebody like you, it's almost like your body is telling you, you can't use me to cope anymore. <laughs> like you can't use me to numb out, to run away. You actually need to look inward. <laughs> because this is another one of those say- sayings that sounds so cliche, but it's so true. But all of the answers that we need, all the healing that we need, is it's always inside of ourselves. And so I feel like if our when whether we get sick, whether we have an injury, et cetera, that's our body telling us like you actually have to look in. Like you have to stop looking outside, whether it's running, whether it's some other type of addiction, whether society wants to label it as a healthy addiction or a unhealthy addiction. Those are funny semantics to me. Um, But it's always going back to like, look inward. What am I not seeing about myself that is true? And so we, again, become like identified with these external labels. And here's like the crazy thing about running. And I've been thinking about this a lot lately, that we'll actually never be the best runner that we can be if we are identified as a runner or if it's one of our main identities, because the ego or identity runs off of fear, which means like it's always fears its own its own death. And so as runners, we're either going to age or we're going to get injured at some point. With that being said, so that's not just like some out there example, because what happens when we are in a place of fear, we also have stress hormones and cortisol running through our body which are okay temporarily. Like if we're trying to like run away from, 
I hate using the example of like an animal because like the cases of a mountain lion or bear attacking are so rare. And like most animal like bears or like mountain lions like don't want to have anything to do with us. But anyway, that is the classic example. So if we're running away from some something dangerous, stress hormones are great. But we when we cling to a fear that has to do with an ego or an identity, that cortisol and that stress actually ends up living inside of our bodies, which means in terms of running or an athletic pursuit that we constantly have these stress hormones in our body that are actually blocking recovery and blocking performance. So the athlete that realizes like, hey, I really enjoy doing this activity and maybe and maybe we can see it as like um, – a reflection of who we are, a way that we express ourselves. But that athlete will actually like perform better and be able to actually like perform from a place of joy. I mentioned the nature-based psychotherapy. Mm-hmm. And I'm curious why you chose that path. Why did you want to become a psychotherapist and serve others in this way? I mean, having conversations that I imagine are very similar to what we are having when you are working with a client. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm debating where I want to start with that question. So I grew up in Ohio. And when I started to think about what I wanted to do in playing in the mental health realm, there was nothing in Ohio that felt that it fit anymore, which for me is also like a signal that I was finally in a different place in my life where I'm like, I don't want to do just this like Western approach anymore. And for me, like I knew like, so all the programs out there, they seem too like cookie cutter. And then I finally found programs out here. And specifically I was reading like an article and I had, that's when I first heard about Neuropa University in Boulder. Um, And I'm like, oh, that actually sounds really interesting. It seems like more expansive uh, more encompassing than I could find anywhere else. And it was a series of events that led me to actually going to Naropa. But in my own journey, as I had be first started my healing journey, I would say like in my early 20s, and really when I started running, nature was extremely therapeutic for me. It's It was just a place where I felt held. And also as a place as somebody who... I guess I would consider myself um, as an empath, felt a little more free outside. Didn't feel the constraints of both what I should or shouldn't do or of other people's energies, which is really what drew me to, I'd say, the nature-based piece of what I do. Okay. We have not gotten into this part of the Mm -hmm. conversation yet, but I am aware of some of that history Mm -hmm. of the things that Um, you were healing Mm -hmm. from, right? Mm -hmm. Some of the stuff you share, well, you share a lot so Mm -hmm. vulnerably, so openly and freely and trustingly on social media. It's in your writing. And I feel like, you know, it's like someone who, if you were only text-based, you know, textbook-based in your psychotherapy, but didn't have the work that you've done within yourself didn't have the experiences of maybe traumas or whatever going on in your life to bring to that and an openness and, and willingness mm-hmm. to share who you are in that. Mm-hmm. 
then there might not, in my mind, be as much credibility, right? I don't want somebody who just reads the Bible and preaches that at me. I mm-hmm. want somebody who has understood addiction and sobriety, and they've walked mm-hmm. that hard road and learned for themselves. So my question then on how and why psychotherapy, why be a therapist for other people, kind of comes through that lens. What is it in in your heart that led you to this? And what is it that you, well, I guess get from it in a sense in terms of, I mean, that sounds like a selfish, greedy sort of Mm. um, perspective. And and I hope you hear what I'm trying to ask, but Mm. maybe not doing so eloquently. Well, that's just like another myth that we either have to help ourselves or help others when like they, it really all flows together when we're actually like in harmony um, with, um, how do I want to say it? When we're in harmony with our true selves or like that expansive form of, I'll, I'll just say spirituality for for now. And the cool thing is, it was just last night where I, I was with a client and she very, she was just super grateful after our session. And the, the healing part for me within that is what she was, what she was going through. I had been there before. I'm like, I know how much, I like actually truly know how much pain you're in. And it was because I had allowed myself to go so deep within my own pain that I was able to, to be a light for her and guiding her through her own darkness. And so for me, psychotherapy, and now like getting to like speak about things and write about things, is it's allowing me to use my gifts, which for me, and I just say, just even being on this podcast is so healing for me because what my ego would want to say is like, you need to do all of these cool things in order for somebody to like want to listen to you. Like you need to win a race or you need to hike across the country or whatever in order to be enough to like actually be on a podcast. And here I am like just getting to be me and like tell parts of my story and letting what I know to flow through. And so coming back to like the psychotherapy part, like I am a natural empath, like I am a natural feeler. Um, and I'm super emotional and growing up like that was not okay. Like in the Midwest, um, and I know we're both from like different, very different parts of the the Midwest, (laughs) but like still a part where it's like my mom and I love her so much. And I, I hope she, if she listens to this, she doesn't take it in the wrong way because I needed her to be how she was. So I could like go into my own deaths. She's so tough love. Like if I was hurt or was in pain, it was more like, why are you crying? Like tough up. Right. Which means I shut a huge part of myself down. And nobody taught me how to use my gifts as a kid. Nobody taught me how to use my emotions, how to use my ability to sense other people's emotions. Nobody taught me that it was okay to think differently and and think deeply. Like schools are all so cookie cutter. They value the kids who can memorize things and don't question. I am not like that. And so I was completely shut out. And so now what I get to do is help bring out the gifts in others. And I can like sometimes like tap in to the emotions of others or ask about their experience and see what wants to flow out of them. So see what's been blocked within them, what layers of protection they've formed so they can come back to 
their true selves. And that is such a, like, it's so it's healing for them, but it's such a gift for me to be able to do that as well. I've mentioned your book, Light and Dark, uh, with a subtitle, Reflections on the Human Experience. So obviously we are talking a lot and and we jumped right in, Mm -hmm. human experience, and that's something that matters Mm -hmm. to both of us. And I think it's something that drives me in doing this Mm -hmm. podcast. And I've I've been interviewing people in one format Mm -hmm. or another for a good 20 years. And it was always, actually, you know, it's longer than that. I started off talking with my grandmothers Mm -hmm. and other family members. I've Mm -hmm. always been curious about people's experiences and stories. Mm -hmm. What can I learn from that? How did it feel? Mm -hmm. Get a sense of people... I must have been looking for connection in that way yeah. forever. Mm-hmm. And with with your book, you obviously are, are jumping in and going deeply into experiences, feelings, connections with nature through mm-hmm. poems. You've written essays. And there was a line in particular I want to read real quick here. Mm-hmm. I mean, there were many that, that, of course, have meaning and importance to, mm-hmm. to you and, and to me. And I'm going to maybe touch on two or three if we hit them organically mm-hmm. throughout the conversation. But this first one, you wrote, the more we heal our individual selves in our own internal battles, the more we heal the collective. I feel like that's something that is obvious to you and I in a way, or at least we've come to that place. Mm-hmm. And then that kind of brings the pain of but why isn't it obvious to the rest of the world that we actually need to come together and have connection and heal together rather than create more of that separation. You know, as the saying goes, hurt people, hurt people. I don't want to be somebody who's out there hurting people in the world. Yet I struggle with my own hurt on a daily, hourly, minutely basis, right? Again, no question. They just aren't coming. And I think it's because there's so much depth in this subject matter that I spend my life pretty much dwelling in and and working Mm -hmm. with and writing through, and you are doing the same. And then you have your form of trying to serve and contribute in humanity as a therapist and as a running coach and just Mm -hmm. being a human on the planet. Mm -hmm. And I'm doing it through the podcast. Mm -hmm. So I guess here's a question that comes to me with this. We're all in different places in this process. Some people don't recognize how hurt they are and that they are rippling hurt in the world. Mm -hmm. Some people are putting in great efforts to heal themselves and to to be light for Mm -hmm. others in Mm -hmm. the world. Going back to that spiritual teacher and friend I referred to before, she teaches everyone is doing the best with where they are. Everyone is putting in the work. It doesn't always look the same to all of us, but we need to trust that each other is trying. A few things with that. (laughs) So our gift, like you saying that you can understand the concept that we need to heal ourselves, which will help um, heal the world because everything's connected. You and I can inherently understand that. For me, it's just a very known truth. But I can also break that down um, into a psychotherapy lens as well. But because we are so sensitive to that, we can kind of, we can light a path for others, the people who don't see that. And we can both do that from a place of compassion. And I love what your teacher said as well, where everybody really is doing the best they can. And I think 
so you and I kind of have this, um, and I'm assuming like we'll have a mix of people listening, but I'm guessing the people gravitating to this conversation are going to be similar where we can see the big picture and we can see how good things can be. And we feel, we also feel the pain of separation of like, man, if we just all did this, like, and all came from a place of compassion and beauty and love that the world could be so different. And we see and like where we are too in the separation of that. So that causes a lot of pain. But we need kind of these people that can hold this greater perspective to actually lead the way. With that, there's a lot of people who, this is a big word that I want to bring, are very unconscious. They are very unconscious to pain. And like you said, that the hurt they're in and that the hurt they cause to others. And I know what it's also like to be in that unconscious place too, which is why I can... And to like want to shut out pain, which is why I can come into a place of compassion, forgiveness. I'll say forgiveness and compassion for people who I'm like, that is not <laughs> like the best way to live. That actually sounds judgmental as I say that. But to say like, oh, you're actually hurting the earth when you do that. But I think, yeah, because of like the 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 feeling and how I've allowed my feelings to guide my thinking is I can unravel why somebody might cause pain or to actually see that that other line you brought up like hurt people hurt people like yeah I can see the root of that which is really cool too because we can really only heal when we are willing to look at like the root of our pain I want to read another bit from your book. The darkness creates a sense of separation from others, the abandonment wound. This separation creates immense pain. In this state, some fear for their survival and create evil, projecting pain onto others in an attempt to hide their own suffering. And then you also say, soon after, it's the truth that can bring us to the light. My question with this, well, let me say that I've kept encountering lately a quote from Plato, the Greek mm. philosopher, that says, no one is more hated than he who speaks the truth. So my question then is, why do people fear the truth so much? This has been an ongoing question for me. Why is it so upsetting? Why is it so denied and rejected? When you present truth, it, it, I think it ties in with what we were just saying. To me, it's inherent and obvious. Let's be honest with each other because then we can have a better connection, a better relationship. We can build something together that is healthier. I wonder if you have considered in light of something like this that you wrote and included in your book, mm -hmm. why is it that, that people seem to prefer the comfort of the lies and the darkness and the separation and no, I'm going to withdraw onto my property, put up no trespassing signs, make myself look as unfriendly mm -hmm. as possible so that there's, there's this, this gap and, and the wound is just perpetual rather than light and connection mm. i'm just smiling because of the depth of that question and it is something that i've i've thought about i think part of that is with the darkness which here i'll define as unconsciousness and fear together it's just, it's gotten really comfortable 
And once we remove that blanket of comfort, we open ourselves up to pain. And to see the way that we have been living so out of alignment. And as somebody who has opened that door into my own pain and knowing how hard I had to fight to get through that, I can only have compassion for somebody who wants to keep that door closed because it is not easy to admit the pain that we've caused others, other beings, and ourselves. There's this story that I'm remembering of a well being dug somewhere in like a third world country. And it was the first time in this village that like water had been brought here. And most of the town was rejoicing, exciting, like we finally have clean water. But there was an older woman who was so upset about it. She's like, what do you mean? There was water here the whole time. And it for her, like she was denying herself joy right then because of the pain what, of what could have been and the, the suffering that she had gone through. But what she was doing in that present moment was also blocking herself out from joy. And so the path into truth or into the light is to navigate the pain along the way. And that's not always easy. You know, you've, you've referred to, I think a couple of times here, having compassion for people mm-hmm. because of knowing, well, they're, they're hurting mm-hmm. the way then they are maybe lashing out or maybe mm-hmm. however they're interacting with the world, expressing mm-hmm. themselves. I know that that is not their true selves. They're, mm-hmm. they're hurting and that's the source of, of energy they're yeah. acting out of right now. But mm-hmm. I find, and, and I suppose this is ego, right? I can think intellectually or I suppose spiritually mm-hmm. Yes, that's what's going on. Someone there has had a bad day. They've had mm-hmm. a life they've struggled with, whatever the case is. Mm-hmm. And my ego can also say, but they're still not right in how they just treated me or, or whoever, whatever just happened. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. And that's such a difficult practice to keep giving space. Well, and you know, a question that comes to mind for me then is, is how do we draw boundaries? How do we in great love and belief and faith that that person did not mean to hurt me, they are acting out of whatever traumas they're carrying and have not learned how to resolve. That doesn't mean though, that they get to walk around trampling everybody out of ignorance of their higher selves. So how do we set boundaries and practice that compassion and deal with our ego saying, no way, yell back at them. You know, they deserve it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm, I'm smiling now because we're like flowing. Like the word as you were speaking that came to my mind is like boundaries. And what, I, what I've what i learned to do is separate action from person, or I can break that down even more, action, human, spirit. <laughs> and so I can see somebody in the light of who they truly are and then the action that's coming from a wounded place and what my teacher who I call Obi-Wan has taught me to do is not to track what people say but to track the flow of energy so to know if somebody is actually when they're speaking if they're coming from a place of love or if they're coming from a place of fear and even if somebody's coming from a place of fear and they're projecting that out as yelling or anger, 
um, or whatever, I can find compassion to let's I'll throw this back into therapy even more. Like I can find compassion for an inner child that is simply scared. And so, yeah. So that's um, for me, what I've learned even to do in like relationships is that I can, again, see somebody as a good person. I really believe that everybody is good at heart, but to also be like, if somebody is going to like treat me this way, I am going to draw a boundary. And maybe I give some room for me to like communicate of how I'm feeling. But if they don't make steps to change, then I'm like, mm, no, I, I do actually have to put up a boundary here. Like we can't go on this way. And something about a relationship has to change or maybe even end. You mentioned that that inner child. I'm thinking of how also you work with the shadow self, you refer to Carl Jung. Mm -hmm. Have you watched on Netflix the documentary Stutz? Yes. Okay. And I have his book, The Mm -hmm. Tools. Okay. And I don't know that I have spent enough time and focus with it to truly understand and be able to apply it for myself yet. Mm -hmm. But in those concepts, it's looking back at that scared, maybe traumatized Mm -hmm. child that we are holding inside of us that maybe is surrounded by Mm -hmm. shame and all these reasons Mm -hmm. that we feel to stuff it away. Mm -hmm. And instead, the idea is, no, we need to embrace that scared little child that was maybe bullied in school or however we are seeing ourselves. When we're looking at ourselves from an insecure place, that's who I'm seeing is myself in that little body, that little emotional um, state of, of being. Do I understand that correctly so far? Yeah, absolutely, yeah. And and so if we go more down that path then, and if you wouldn't mind sharing more about that inner child sort of perspective and the shadow self and how how to work with that from your perspective. Mm, yeah. Let's start at the beginning of that. So children for firstborn are simply like sensory beings so innocent and so curious about the world. And this is actually an exercise that I would um, suggest for anyone to do is when you wake up in the morning, just like pretend that was like you were just plopped here. You're like, what is this world? And be so curious about it. So either when you wake first wake up in the morning or like if you're um, out on a hike or something and just to be like, look around and be like, oh my gosh, look at that tree and look at that, like how the leaves are formed or look at that pattern in the bark. Like when you look at like a two-year-old or a three-year-old, like that's really like how they are or they're like the ones like and it's so funny, like adults get so annoyed by this, but the they're like the kids are like looking at bugs and stuff or like all the or the rocks on the trail and like really slowing things down. But that is like such beautiful curiosity that most of us have lost along with our innocence. And we lose that innocence by conditioning. And this is how like the ego is formed. And so it's like both society think it's harder for People have grown up um, in various religions. Uh, most religions, not I don't want to say all, most religions have been created out of, of fear um, in some way or in, in various conditions. Like my religion growing up Catholic taught me that I was like a sinner from birth, which is absolutely crazy. Like that's what gave me, part of what gave me that belief that I was like unworthy 
um, and that I had to like suffer to gain worthiness. And I've carried that with me. Um, it's a seemingly impossible task too. It's crazy. It's so crazy. And now I can look it back at this. Like I can almost laugh at it. Like how crazy to like, to have that ingrained and like to believe that. But I was like so young to like, but yeah, now I think of like kids who are told, I don't want to like refer this just to baptism, but to be like, you need to repent for your sins. And I'm like, I just got here. Like, I just got to planet earth. <laughs> like, how how am I already a sinner? <laughs> yeah. And even looking at what sin means is just, sin simply means to miss the mark. And, and really to look at the root, it, it means to miss the mark of true self. You're out of alignment with true self. That's all it means. There's no other weight attached to that. Where does that come from? Because, of course, the word sin we think of in terms of religious context. Mm -hmm. And the way you just defined it, that's not any presentation Mm -hmm. of it in a religious context that I have experienced. Mm -hmm. So what is it that we're looking back at if we look at the roots of the definition of the word sin and the idea of sin? Yeah. So I can't remember if it's Greek or Latin. Um, but it comes back from one of those roots. Okay. But I will say, and then I'll circle back. This is like the entirety of like the English language. <laughs> like so many words are flipped backwards in the English language, which is why we really have to fight to communicate and to connect because our language flips everything and actually wants to keep us separate. And unfortunately, I don't have, I would love to know another language. I don't want to learn another language. Like I don't want to sit through the hours of that. What I am really interested in is the etymology of words. So we can look at sin. We can look at the word weird. Um, actually means um, that the roots I think is old English is fate or destiny. So people who are weird are people who are following the paths of their destiny. Another word we can look at um, is like compete compete what i grew up thinking the word compete meant was essentially go to war or and if we don't want to like take it to that extreme we can say just seeing who's best like that better best thing but really if we look again at the roots compete means to seek together Hmm. so this is like so crazy (laughs) that we've like so yeah so really like um yeah looking for the root of like what we mean when speak i think is really important i i love Mm -hmm. etymology Mm -hmm. and i have tried in the past Mm -hmm. to find a book and i don't know what my what i was expecting Mm -hmm. or what i was looking for exactly Mm -hmm. i'm sure there's one out there that would Mm -hmm. meet the needs of of what i'm after but i love that and i love that sort of knowledge i'm curious for Mm -hmm. that so if you know Mm -hmm. of a book or come across one let me know i think we all Mm -hmm. would do well if we had that kind of study as kids like yeah. people used to learn latin mm-hmm. obviously yeah. it's, that's been many years ago but i mm-hmm. think that would have been a value in terms of giving us those root uh basis for so much of language yeah, yeah. i want to ask you about ego mm-hmm. because i think that that is something you have been diving into and exploring mm-hmm. in i don't know a deeper way mm-hmm. a different way i'm sure it's it's been there for mm-hmm. a lot of years of one, inner work, mm-hmm. but also in the work you do professionally. Where are you right now with ego and how we look at that, how we deal with it? Yeah. So I'm going to circle this back around to the previous question, and I'm going to build off of there. So ego is formed when we're kids. 
by the ways our feelings, our inner knowing, our hearts have been invalidated. And so the ego is a concept of the mind, specifically like the fear-based mind. So it's usually what happens is that we have this felt sense of our needs aren't being met in some way. So we can look at like basic survival needs, like um, food, shelter, like those types of safety. But really what the ego looks at is like connection. So if we don't feel like we're connected to our loved ones around us, Usually what happens is there's this like sensation that happens in our body and we start to contract. What the mind does is pick up on that feeling and creates a story about that. So essentially that, I think that's as deep as I'll go right now, but that's how the ego is formed. And so most of us, most of our lives, we are continuing to build off these stories. We're strengthening these neural pathways in our brain that have... Um, relied on these stories and then it's either at death or maybe somewhere in midlife that we start looking at it and like breaking down the ego and I think this is happening at younger and younger ages for people realizing that we are not this ego identity that we have formed with that being said I feel I didn't mean this year to be as much ego work as it was, but that is like very much what I feel like my soul was calling to you. Like you really have to like break free of all of these identities. And there's been like a, a, a period of a number of years in my life where I, I separated myself from various other labels like runner, but I still want to identify as like adventurer or somebody who's like tough or does hard things. And then I realized like, oh, none of that is me either. And in fact, I wasn't even being like a true explorer or adventurer because I was still following like, oh, this person did this. Let me go do this. Or like I planned out all of my adventures. But if you really want to go an adventure, like that's actually stepping into like the unknown and like really like on your own path, which you can't see. So you actually, which requires you letting go of your ego identity and believing that your mind has all of these answers. And I am someone who was very identified with my mind um, for most of my life. And it's, again, it's slowly been breaking down, but it's like if I had a thought, I thought it had to be true. And now what I'm learning is most of what I think, unless it's a chosen thought, is actually not true or can be broken down. And I'll tie this a little bit into the work of, I'm going to say Mary Magdalene. So the books I've read on Mary Magdalene. And someone else on your podcast had mentioned this or Mary Magdalene before, but really her work in I guess in the gospel, like the Gnostic gospel of Mary was all about the ego and true self. And one of the lines that I've, I'm going to paraphrase here is essentially being be disobedient to the ego mind, which means to see the falseness in your thoughts and choose another path which for me has like opened this other door, like wide open for me of like what to explore and what I can be curious about. I 
completely can understand and relate to this mm-hmm. sense of, well, I want to run, I want mm-hmm. to run ultra distances, I want mm-hmm. to, you know, go up and over big tall mountains in doing mm-hmm. this. I want to have adventures for so many years. You know, you read things like Outside Magazine mm-hmm. or read mm-hmm. people's memoirs mm-hmm. or watch documentaries. And I think I want to be one of those people that mm-hmm. accomplishes big things. I want mm-hmm. to be tough. I want to be yeah. in that rare air of mm-hmm. doing and being in in this human life. But it's interesting that you point out how many of us really want adventure. Because I would have to say an awful mm. lot of the time, it's like, well, do I really want to be just cast mm. out into the wilderness having no, I don't have the mm. skills. Mm-hmm. How am I going to survive yeah. if I don't know anything about true adventure? Now I'm going to tie that to where we are as a society mm. and what I've been observing in recent years and how uncomfortable people are and how destabilized we all are with mm-hmm. the current climate, whether that's socially, politically, mm-hmm. uh, with our health, with the pandemic, it's mm-hmm. you know economically, all of these things that I think that has incited more closing off, more of that fear, more of whatever mm-hmm. the ego identity is with, no, I need things to be rigid mm-hmm. and predictable yeah. and completely steady mm-hmm. because it's a very rare person who truly is up for adventure. Yeah. And being able to face the unknown and the yeah. uncertain. Mm-hmm. We want everything to be dictated for us. Yeah. Yeah. And this is, oh, this is funny because I'm somebody, and it sounds like you're similar, where we're like, okay, we're not going to go off of this like path that everybody's been doing. For me personally, my brain has still tricked me because it's still telling me that I need to achieve things to be worthy. And what happens with the reward system of in my brain is that when I do achieve things that I will say are hard, my brain lights up and I'll send like dopamine through my body. So I'm also learning to, I've kind of been forced to learn how to rewire my brain and not seek comfort or a sense of enoughness like out of achieving things. Actually, I feel like this past year, it's like I've had to like fail a million times and find my enoughness in that with that going off of what you were saying and you might have to like track me a little bit back on on this one but in terms of like there are people out here who are totally fine like following this basic path who are actually really happy and content working with like a nine to five it seems like more like an like eight to five job having a like having a family living like how they've been taught and they're like they're probably like pretty content um which i think is actually fine and for me that's never felt true to my soul but i have like okay let me let me identify with being a rebel instead but again i'm following like the path of like other rebels or like um the safe rebel prescribed exactly (laughs) exactly but for me to actually sit back and to go into the unknown is to be like actually let me actually wait and see what happens let me actually learn how to listen to my body and tell me where joy is going to take me or let me follow um what i call the breadcrumbs or the like the synchronicities in life and see where my path 
leads me. I will like just bookmark, not bookmark, but just say with synchronicities is that they've actually been studied by like physics lately, which I think is really cool. Like it's a real, like synchronicities are a very real phenomenon that Carl Jung has actually talked about as well. But again, with that, it's me kind of like leaning back and learning to come back into like trust with myself that everything that I am meant to experience will actually like come in to my life. So it's not my mind creating these stories or like these certain paths anymore, but trusting that these experiences will come into my life and being able to follow that path and also learning not to fear the unknown because now that we kind of have broken down fear a little bit like fear is just a it's a construct and so for me like also not getting into like that type of fear so and I will say there's a difference between like ego fear and survival fear that I've um, been playing on a little bit but ego fear is that fear of like the mind that's saying like I need to do this thing or to go this way or to do that and yeah for me to like really separate like that's the fear that I don't want to give into whereas like fear of like doing the hard thing I've done that so many times where like uh I feel like unprepared to do this or like um running this like 100 mile race that's that's me like actually giving in to my ego because I've run a hundred mile race injured from like the beginning that was hundred percent me giving in to my ego with that yeah so yeah. yeah yep show up to the start line injured and and just push through and yeah I would like to talk about your sister Amanda mm. And there's so much there to celebrate about her, mm-hmm. to talk about in terms of relationship mm-hmm. with you and with death. She was 36. She had cancer. Mm-hmm. And the experience that you describe, at least some of, for you, your sister mm-hmm. Sandy, who you've already mentioned, and your family as a whole are coming mm-hmm. around, Amanda, I guess I'm wondering and wanting to learn about the relationship maybe before, maybe as kids. And then also when you encountered this experience with her. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Amanda and I were pretty close when we were really young. And I could be like goofy with her and like make her smile. And it's almost funny for me to think about that because sometimes, and I've healed a lot of shame around this, my sister Sandy, who I'm twins with, I think was sometimes separated from that and I've kind of we've just kind of come back and like healed that part of separation but in terms of like with Amanda first of all interesting things like I'm going to be 36 next year which feels really big to me now and Amanda is also the I think her and my dad are the first ones who ever called me Ray so my full name is Rachel but I prefer to go by Ray. And I think it's because Amanda had, and my dad had like seen that light on me early on. As we got older, I think Amanda and I became more separate. And there was times that I tried to connect with her and she just couldn't always connect back with me as deeply as I think she wanted to, because I think she had a lot of her own pain that she didn't know how to express. With that, her, her, I would just say like the dying process brought us closer together. 
I think part of that's a natural piece that happens in family that we caretake and et cetera, et cetera. But what happened really was Amanda allowed us to see her true self. I got to see, first of all, like her ego fight of like first like fighting the death and I got to see like the angry and like the the mean parts which weren't really her like I knew when that was like especially now like that's ego popping out the ego just doesn't want to die and once she let go of that I just saw like this very I don't want to say raw but true self like the part when she let me hold her hand when she asked me can you just hold my hand right now and allowed me to feel her spirit in that. And so when she finally passed away, one, it connected my family in a much deeper level that we could actually be witness to each other's pain. That my parents actually cried. They hadn't cried most of my, I think I'd only seen my dad cry when his brother died. I don't know if maybe I'd seen my mom cry once too. But when we can see each other in our pain that we allow ourselves to like be witness and, and to be seen and there's so much healing in that. And I will say now, now that Amanda's been gone for a little over three years, she is almost a part of me. Like her wisdom is constantly coming through. Like it's flowing, what she taught me is flowing through like even right now. And there are times where like, I just know she's, around sometimes like this song of one of her favorite bands comes on the radio at like this perfect time and it's like crazy to me or I like I get a sign of like a butterfly or a rose her middle name was Rose and like I just know that my sister had something to do with that so she still shows up in my life in in so many ways now and so that being said now that her ego is gone like it allows for that like deeper connection that we didn't always have when we were teenagers because our egos were so strong. You wrote about the experience of, as it turns out, it was a week mm-hmm. before she died, and this sort of orchestration between you and Sandy and Amanda to get her to the bathroom. Mm-hmm. And that this was, I mean, compared to those of us who were able to just stand up out of our chair and go, you know, there was an effort here mm-hmm. to be able to move her in the weakened state she was in physically. Mm-hmm. And a word and question that came to my mind in that, which ties in with mm-hmm. what you've been expressing about ego, mm-hmm. is dignity. Mm-hmm. As a grown adult, as a 36-year-old human, and you need your siblings to get you to the bathroom, to remove your clothing so that you can handle that process Mm -hmm. and then to wait. I think you said maybe as long as 20 minutes, 10 Mm -hmm. minutes, Mm -hmm. and then help her escort her back gently to Mm -hmm. where she needs to rest. And I'm thinking of the ego involved and the dignity and what that process might be for Amanda, but also what that might've shined light on for you. And I'll say Sandy, but for you Mm -hmm. to speak for you, what was that like and what might you have experienced with Amanda and having to let go and say, okay, I need my sisters to help me with this, this very intimate, personal, private experience? You're highlighting on something I hadn't thought of in that death. And like so many pathways are like, or things are lighting off in my brain and like connections. 
which is just really beautiful and, and cool for me. And one thing I've written about myself is that to be open to who we are, we actually have to stand naked. And you're right, Amanda was giving me this very literal example. And most of us, I will say, have like some type of shame around our bodies. Like we don't want to be seen. And for Amanda to let go of that and to be like, hey, I need help help here. That was, as you said, like letting go of this thing that we call dignity or, or something that we want to attach to and to like just be able to let go of that. And I'm like slowing down as I talk because I'm really starting to like process this question that you have brought to me. But that I think what ultimately what I can bring this back to is this question that if you're willing, whoever, I guess I say that open to whoever is listening, are you willing to ask yourself at the deepest level, like, who am I? And I'll just throw this out there in a different way. Like, who are, like, who are you really? Because obviously, like Amanda was still alive at that point. She was on a different level of consciousness, I will say, at that point. But she was still physically alive. So if she was able to let go of that, this thing that most of us want to cling on to, then she obviously wasn't that. She wasn't her dignity. She wasn't her job at that point. She wasn't, she was, Amanda was always like really sharp and witty and some of that was going. So she wasn't that. And she's also learning to like disidentify with a healthy, young, functional body. Like, wasn't that. So then who was she? Who is she now, I guess? So, yeah. More to think about there. At some point in this experience, which I think was several years long, mm -hmm with cancer for Amanda. Your mother also had cancer. Mm -hmm. I don't know where in the process that mm -hmm. became known, mm -hmm. but I'm thinking that seems like more than double the burden and weight emotionally, mentally, for the whole family to mm -hmm. realize we're already going through this with one of them. And, mm -hmm. I, and I don't even know, I guess, which one you knew that about first. Yeah, Amanda's process with cancer had been going on for probably a year and a half to two years at that point. And then I remember getting the call from my mom. And this was just a really crazy period in my life, where I was also living in a motel because of um, an end of a relationship that ended with me just needing to get out of that, my, me and my dog to get out of that place as quickly as possible. <laughs> So then my mom like calls me and I remember instantly just falling to my knees. Like, I can't take this. Like, this is too much. And so that was like probably what I will call like one crack to my ego. Like, how can I actually experience all of this pain and all of this love too that I have for my sister and my mom? I will say... The interesting thing with my mom coming in here is I think we, me and my sisters knew that my mom 
would ultimately be okay. Part of it's just like her tough persona um, and her ability to just get just get through things, which is an I, I just I'm hesitating as I say that because that's not always um, I don't want to say it's unhealthy, but it's also not always healthy. But I do remember like being or texting both of my sisters at that time, one promising each other that we were never going to like keep things from ourselves. If my mom probably had that diagnosis before weeks before she told us until she like had to. And I think I just want to circle around and say that was one of the moments that I realized like how much pain that I could handle. Like it was more than I thought I could. But to like love these people so deeply and really have that hit my heart and to still be open and to be so open and vulnerable like you actually have to allow pain in you've described her death as having led you onto another path in your life mm-hmm. and as having cracked you open and kind of laid bare these mm-hmm. things maybe that's what you were just describing but if there's more in that sense of how that might have led you in a direction or understanding in your life, maybe an understanding about death. Mm-hmm. Um, if you would share that, if if there's more than what you just said. Yeah. I just love the depth of your questions so much. Um, I'll say a little bit more. So I think I was already on a path that, Well, I was. I went to, again, Naropa University, which is a Buddhist-inspired school. So it ties in Western practices with Eastern practices. So I was already on a path that was um, dabbling in spirituality or like the transpersonal. But Amanda's death like really made me like dive into it Um, and looking at things like near-death experiences and really like these existential questions of like what is the meaning what is our purpose what is death is death a final thing do we continue on beyond that and for me like I'm somebody who's like I'm actually gonna sit with you like I'm not gonna just like blow these away with or like let these like float with like answers from religion or just like have these questions and not like look into them deeply like I'm gonna go into these deeply and I think one thing that I want to point out because I think this is gonna be really important is that when we have to go through losing a loved one someone who's very close to us we get to choose how we want to perceive their death and what I would never tell somebody who loses a loved one is like oh everything happens for a reason like I would want to like throw something (laughs) at that person but what you can do is to put meaning on it and for me that was very intentional Like, I lost my sister. I'm not going to say she should have died. I'm not going to say that there was a reason that she she died. But I, that there was maybe like an inherent reason. But I'm like, I am absolutely going to put meaning to that. And so I allowed her death to inform my path and how I continued on with my life and how I was going to live. I think that death, of course, is a subject that... Mm -hmm. Broadly, generally speaking, we as a society are very uncomfortable with. Mm -hmm. And I think that's why it's important that we be able to talk about this. And and whatever you have learned within yourself in relation to, you know, Amanda, because it's a very difficult question for me to bring up 
with just any given person. Mm-hmm. Um, and some are more comfortable with it than others. You have a, a poem or some thoughts in your book called Many Deaths. Would you care to share more about that and how we all experience these deaths throughout our life? And maybe from the spiritual perspective, which in more recent years I have come to a bit and try to work with the concept of death, not as the end of this one life, but as something else in the process of life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What I've learned is you have to die. You have to be willing to die to remember who you are. So when I speak of many deaths, part of what I'm referring to is the many layers of my ego that I had to let go of. Sometimes willingly, sometimes um, I, I really tried to cling on hard. And this is what the other part I want to frame here is this is why the healing journey can last so long for some people is that because we have so many layers of um, I'll call protection built around us. And so I feel like really uh, Amanda's death being part of the catalyst the past few years have me been like kind of breaking through each layer and really dying. And I, but I feel now, I feel like I am at the cusp of the end of one journey and almost into like the edge or like into the next journey, which feels like really, I can almost touch like expansiveness of that, of me living a life of like who I truly am. So with the part of the many deaths, are you willing to, and you don't always have to go like head on to it, but just to like start to question beliefs that you've had, values, like what are yours, what has been given to you? And even just like the beliefs that have played on over and over again in your own mind. And there's this quote by Abraham Hicks where a belief is just a thought that you keep thinking. And so are you really just being able to like be curious about this? Like even the ways that you know, seem to know how the world works. Can you question question that and be like, is that is that true? Or is it actually, is that a belief that it has been given to me or that I've just learned? And is there something actually else that I want to believe to be true? And allow that just to, to potentially open up new pathways. It reminds me of a question, if I go back again to mm-hmm. that spiritual teacher and friend mm-hmm. of mine, who when someone says something to mm-hmm. you, And it might be something that you would feel defensive about. You would feel as criticizing something. And if you ask the question, how is it true? Meaning what within what they are saying might actually be something I I really do need to examine. Maybe there is some truth. Maybe I can break down the ego that wants to resist and be defensive. But if I flip that with what you were just saying is if we take our beliefs and then maybe we re-examine by saying, well, how might this not be true? You know, what is untrue within this belief that Mm -hmm. I so perhaps rigidly cling to, right? Also with the death idea, I'm remembering, I maybe, I don't know what this speaks to in terms of maybe anxiety or something. Mm -hmm. I feel like I've had this 
for a really long time, and it, and it at least goes back to when I was a teenager, I had this looming anxiety, someone close mm-hmm. to me is going to die. Mm-hmm. Toward the end, it was the spring of my freshman year of college, I get a mm-hmm. call from my mom, find out my parents are getting divorced. Mm-hmm. And immediately that weight is lifted. And what I realized was in this case, it was metaphorical. It uh-huh. was the death of the family as I had known it. Uh-huh. Now that would lead to yeah. all the subsequent decades of various mm-hmm. things, but for better and worse, that experience of, I feel this looming thing, this darkness, this death mm-hmm. coming. Mm-hmm. Okay, now something actually arrived. Mm-hmm. Maybe it was a metaphor, mm-hmm. but something has died. And then all the years since, and so I continue to have these sorts of anxious feelings. Mm-hmm. Oh, you know, what what would happen if if my wife dies? You know, how about, what about my sons then? Or what, you know, the most mm-hmm. tragic thing I could think of would be to lose one of my sons mm-hmm. in, in any way. Yeah. And I guess, I guess I wonder what you might have learned in that sort of land. I don't know if you've ever experienced that, if that's ever been a looming thing. And then it was brought into reality through the experience, the potential fear and, and worries with your mother's mm-hmm. illness, then with your sister, who then you actually did have to, to say goodbye to. Has any of that experience shifted then maybe how you look at the concept of impending death or one that we, I don't know if this is ego-based, that we tend to say, oh, that was too soon. She was too young because we have concepts in our minds and think, no, I'm owed 76.2 mm-hmm. years because, yeah. I, uh, you know, that's the yeah. average or whatever it yeah. is now. Yeah. I would say that that's a, such a great question, but I would say that's our like us applying our human judgment onto a situation that's happened. And there is a different way of, of looking at that. But that's a really hard one, especially with people who die too young, to not be judgmental that they died too young. And I had said something in, in that context my whole life, because I had um, an uncle who died at 29, who was just like such an amazing, loving, like, life of the room person. So I'd gr- grown up believing that. So, um, oh, I can't remember who sings it. Um, there's this line um, in this one song about like, yeah, the young always dying too soon. And I'd wanted to believe that for a really long time. And the, 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 here's the other funny thing that humans want to do is that we want to judge death as bad. And that's like real. This is like a huge flip. I'm like laughing because it's going to be like, it's a mind blowing thing for a lot of people to like actually look like, what if death is good? And that's what I kind of was saying in like that many deaths poem that like actually death like opens us up to so much more. It's harder to apply that to physical death. And I will say if you recently lost somebody that you dearly loved, like this is a conversation to come back to in a few years. Um, I would allow yourself to like have that healing space first. But back to like what you were saying, and I love that the example that you shared where I like as a kid, I was always scared that like there's going to be a kidnapper or like some like mass murderer who like would like break into my home and like take my family away. Um, That was always a fear of mine. And I think... With that, I always had this dream. I'm laughing now. But it was like Ursula from The Little Mermaid, like coming (laughs) in and like stealing my family. And I think for me, like that dream was just helping me like process some of my fears. 
And I think why like I hung on to that fear for so long is that I just simply didn't have anyone to go to with my emotions or to like or just like ask these questions. But again, like as loving as my parents were, they didn't know how to and again, they're products of uh, the baby boomer generation. They didn't know how to deal with their own emotions, let alone mine, a super emotional, sensitive, highly attuned kid. And so I was left with like that fear in my body. And because death was just like so feared in society, I think a lot of, um, you're making me like, realize things that I didn't didn't have these realizations to before but I think I just kind of projected that on to death like my the fear that was in me like on to death because that was at least like somewhat acceptable in society because everybody fears that's what we want to say like everybody fears death <laughs> and we end up with this concept of it's positive to try to prolong like whether it's a pet or you know grandpa just live as long as possible, mm-hmm. even if you're suffering, right? Because we don't want to grasp the possibility that there is positive in death, I think. And because there's so much fear and we spend a lifetime and culturally, societally developing this concept of fear around death and that it's a negative, which I find interesting. If we go back and pull at the thread of you know religion and what it teaches mm-hmm. and the concepts for I think, you know, a good number of at least, if not all of mm-hmm. the major organized religions, there's this concept of heaven or some version of it mm-hmm. that I would think maybe that means death would be seen as a positive, but still it's seen as fear. Yeah. And I think it ties back into, that's such a good point. I think it turns goes back to that point where it's like, we have to be good enough to like get into heaven or we have to like repent um for all of our just like simply like human foibles like what if i don't make the grade right to like get into that like back to that sense of like worthiness and i think and maybe that is like why we all fear death because most of us don't feel like we're worthy of heaven i guess to use that term like terminology um which is like a cool that like you're saying that and reflecting that back to me because now I can like almost laugh at laugh at that to like see how that storyline has played out for so long and be like, oh, that's actually like kind of silly that I've just like hung on to that belief for so long. We're getting in. There's so much that's interwoven here. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking now of attachment, right? It's attachment to life. Mm-hmm. Well, it's just like attachment to ego. It's all these mm-hmm. things that we've been talking mm-hmm. about and I mean, we really could just keep pulling at these threads endlessly. Uh, But I'm going to head toward winding us down, sort of. You have something else that you wrote. Um, Again, I don't know if if this is what you would call a poem that is in your book or, um, you know, it's a a short paragraph of thoughts. Mm -hmm. And you call it magic. Mm. Now, I did not ask you this beforehand. Mm -hmm. So I will give you a choice here. If you would like to read that, and then I would get to hear you as the writer read your own words, or if you prefer that I read it, since I'm surprising you with this moment, (laughs) uh, or any other reason, if you would prefer to be able to listen back to those words before we move on to a question and some sharing some thoughts around it. Do you have a preference? 
I think I want to step into what's uncomfortable for me because I've never done it before. So I think I will, since you've granted me with this opportunity, I will read it and see how it resonates. Okay. 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 Magic. I had the realization that it's not that I don't want to be here anymore, but that I don't want to live and participate in a dark, limited world created for me, not by me. Magic, then, is realizing that I have the power to choose differently, that I can create my own world from the light within me. Thank you. So there is a particular line in that that stands out and and impresses something on me. And it's, I don't want to live in a dark, limited world created for me, not by me. Now, I think there are a couple of layers, at least to this, that I'm feeling. But as I think beyond myself at this idea of a world created for me, I mean, I'm as good as it gets when it comes to having benefit and privilege in this world as a white, Mm -hmm. cisgender, heterosexual male, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, that's who created the society that we live in. Mm-hmm. And it it took me into this place of just thinking about how the world is created and put upon each of us. I feel that as a person who is highly aware and sensitive and perceptive and mm-hmm. all these things, I feel that, let alone any other reasons that, mm-hmm. you know, someone of color, someone who is queer and so on might feel extra mm-hmm. confined by such a thing. And so I'm wondering what you, I mean, as a human, but also professionally as a therapist, mm-hmm. how you encourage someone who's, who might find it very difficult to believe that they can create their own world. They can have their own self-belief and self-love and think, mm-hmm. I can shine my light and I don't have to just accept the way the world has been created and shaped and those mm-hmm. rules I've been given and told, no, 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 your emotions aren't allowed here. Your creativity mm-hmm. isn't wanted yeah. here. How do you encourage someone who struggles to see that light within themselves and that possibility to to believe? What's first coming to mind is the main piece is that I don't act on fear anymore. So that's just not saying that I don't live by certain rules of society. It's not saying that this is just a general example that I, I don't like I don't pay taxes because I don't believe in where they're going to. Like for me, it's like I'm going to pay my taxes, but I'm not going to do them from a place of fear or anger. And I'm still going to like choose to create from a place of love and compassion and from like the light within me. So I will say if if you have or if you're not in touch with the light within you, you simply just have some like unearthing to do. Like you've probably been been buried in stories and fear. And that doesn't mean the light isn't there. It's just like we've just got some like shoveling to do, which is why therapy or just simply asking yourself these questions are so important. So I'd say like the the biggest, cheapest tool that you can do or find is to simply buy a journal and start writing i think you can still find a journal like relatively cheap right now and start just to ask yourself these questions and just to kind of i I prefer free writing rather than like sitting down and thinking and be like this is how my day went but just to like let my pen flow like that's um been really healing for me 
And I think the other point with what you just brought up is what I have found that freedom, it's actually rarely in me being rebellious and just being like, well, if this is society and I don't want to like live in it, then I'm just going to like go live in the woods or whatever. I'm still very tempted to do that at times. But I also have realized that I am meant to be in connection and where magic and freedom truly comes in is freedom of my mind. And I think the classic work that we can come back to with this that should be of all the required reading books that I had read in like my how many years of schooling, the one that was not on there was Viktor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning. And if we want to look at any story of freedom, it is looking back to that book, how he could still find love, compassion, freedom while being in a concentration camp. And then from all that pain, him creating these beautiful works that we still talk about and so many people still like quote him to this day. Like that's magic. That's beautiful. Yeah, yeah. And it's a good good example. I obviously like to talk about these big, deep, meaningful to me mm-hmm. topics of, of our existence and, and of life. To me, this is where we can get vulnerable and connect with each other. And actually, probably anyone who's listening mm-hmm. this deep into the conversation, they might be okay with it too, mm-hmm. right? And, and the yeah. weight of it. And I think you enjoy these kinds of conversations as well. Yeah. But all that said... Let's wrap up with maybe a lighter question that just has to do with what brings you joy. Mm. I love that one. I've been like, I am still pausing too because I've been unraveling that. Because for me, like this past year is like, I've been realizing I can't go find joy. Like I have to allow it to like come from within me. And to like conceptualize that a little bit, I would say that, how I have framed this before is that happiness is an emotion, but joy is a state of being. And so for me to, again, allow my mind or to, for me to um, be disobedient from my mind, so not to listen to it, to see some of my, th- my thoughts as an illusion and to come back to, to myself and find the joy within me. That being said, so... Yeah, realizing that that joy is my inherent, like if anything's my inherent birthright, it's it's joy. And so learning not to go seek that from the outside. With that, what I can say helps me expand into joy is being with my dog, being with my sister, so and her partner, um, so being with Sandy and Sage, because I just like know that they're gonna accept me no matter what, for exactly who I am. It seems like you guys family. have a great relationship, by yeah. the way, just from afar online. Yeah. Like you're so close, you and Sandy yeah. in particular. Yeah, and I will say Amanda's passing brought us closer. It's allowed us to like let go of some of like our protections. And so it's really, and I want to say like still being out in the mountains, but I think that being in the mountains for me, I used to long for them. Like, I'm like, I just need to be, like be out in the mountains and I'll feel better. And so I've learned that, no, like that's that's me still longing for something outside of myself that's actually within myself. But I will say being outside still allows me to like 
kind of open up and be a, a full, like a very expansive um, version of me. So there's maybe, I don't want to say more joy out there, but I can feel it in a different way. But man, it really does come back to connection. And it can be with like trees too, but connection with the ones that I love the most deeply. Connection, again, being a synonym that can be used as love. Mm -hmm. And earlier when you used the word joy, way back toward the beginning, I think of the conversation and it had come to my mind and I'm thinking this out loud. This is not, I I need some time to process things generally, Mm -hmm. but joy as self-love, as a feeling of ourselves in that lightest, most easeful sort Mm -hmm. of way is what's coming to my mind. Again, I've not gotten a chance to sit, process, journal with that and think, well, does that really align? But I'm throwing it out there to see, does that, is that something that resonates? Does that make any sort of sense in your mind? Yes, it comes back. I wish I had this memorized a little bit better, but there's a Rumi quote. It's basically saying that you don't have to find like how... Oh, I'm going to butcher this. It's basically saying that you have to like see like just what what all your blocks to love are. And so what I know now, having gone so deep into my own work, is that anytime I'm telling myself a story that is based on fear or any other emotion, that that story is untrue, that it is an illusion and that it is fog. And the only times that I am really in touch with my true self, my true being and the essence of others if I'm t- if I am in a story of love and joy, which means when those heavier emotions, those uncomfortable emotions come up, that I get to look at the story that I am telling myself and start to unravel that and just allow it for me to see how I'm out of alignment. But for me, like knowing now that yes, I am at my core joy, love, light, peace, and anything other than that is untrue. That's as beautiful a way I think we can end this, you know. So I want to give people a chance to know where they can find your book. And I believe it's available through Amazon. Is that right? Yes. Okay. So that said, I'm brought to thank you, you know, for such an incredible conversation, going so deep with me and and sharing so much of your insights and wisdom from not only professionally, but of course, from your own deep years long inner work. Yeah. Just thank you, Ray. And I will say, one, you're welcome. I will receive that with an (laughs) open heart. And again, thank you for, again, I feel like my inner child is like, like almost telling me like, see, I told you so. Like you can be your true self and people still want to like hear from you and listen to you. Like you don't have to do all these crazy other things. Like you just get to be you. So thank you. And again, my like inner child is celebrating right now. So sincerely, thank you for giving me this opportunity. I like circles. That just brought us back full circle to how we started this. Perfect. And also you've highlighted in again here and reminded me that the way you've said about looking at yourself and being worthy of being on a podcast and to be able to share who you are, that to me is really at the heart of what this podcast is about. And I want people to really understand that, that mm-hmm. I enjoy getting to talk with, and I do believe, as cliche as it sometimes sounds, All of us have stories and we all have insights. Mm -hmm. We all have something worth sharing. And those stories are all welcome here with me to have this kind of conversation. So thank you for highlighting that as well. And, And the fact that an awful lot of people probably are afraid of the exact same thing. 
I'm not worthy of sharing. I don't have anything to share. Yeah. And it's just not true. So thank you absolutely for coming in. I've enjoyed this very much. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for listening to the We Are Chafee Looking Upstream podcast. If our conversation here today sparks curiosity for you, you can learn more in this episode's show notes at wearechafee.org. If you have comments or know someone in Chafee County, Colorado, who I should consider talking with on the podcast, you can email us at info at wearechafee.org. We invite you to rate and review the We Are Chafee Looking Upstream podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever platform you use with that functionality. We also invite you to tell others about the Looking Upstream podcast. Help us to keep growing community and connection through conversation. Once again, I'm Adam Williams, host, producer, and photographer. John Prey is engineer and producer. Thank you to Cahan 106.9 FM, our community radio partner in Salida, Colorado. To Heather Gorby for graphic and web design. To Andrea Carlstrom, director of Chafee County Public Health and Environment. And to Lisa Martin, community advocacy coordinator for the We Are Chafee Storytelling Initiative. The We Are Chafee Looking Upstream podcast is a collaboration with the Chafee County Department of Public Health and the Chafee Housing Authority, and it's supported by the Colorado Public Health and Environment Office of Health Disparities. You can learn more about the Looking Upstream podcast and related storytelling initiatives at wearechafee.org and on Instagram and Facebook at wearechafee. Lastly, until the next episode, as we say here at We Are Chafee, share stories, make change.